Hi guys, and welcome to episode 208 of the podcast. This is Lindsay, and my guest today is someone that I could talk to all day long about the ins and outs of societal pressure on women and expectations, the evolution of how we got here. We could go on and on, but we're going to try to rein it in today and focus on birth planning, and more importantly, postpartum planning as a way to manage our expectations, to prepare ourselves for what that postpartum period might look like. So my guest today is Andrea Fugere-Chu. She is a certified Canadian counselor here in Whitehorse, Yukon. The many letters after her name will tell you that Andrea is very accomplished in her field. But what I find most fascinating about her practice is her special interest in maternal mental health and supporting parents through the postpartum period. We often normalize or maybe even glorify the struggles and challenges associated with bringing home a new baby or transitioning your family and family dynamics around that postpartum period. And many parents struggle in silence for fear of judgment or shame. So I'm really excited to talk to Andrea about how we can start to change the narrative and better support ourselves and our families and moms in general, or parents in general around this postpartum period. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you. Hi. I'm happy to be here today. So maybe let's start with just telling the listeners a little bit about kind of how you got into the world of counseling and what led you down the road of specializing in maternal mental health. Sure. Um, Well, I always wanted to be uh, a counselor, probably since I was in grade 10 or 11. I wanted to be a school counselor. Uh, And so I um, took a very long and windy road uh, and I eventually uh, got there. Um, I worked in the school system um, in Whitehorse for a little bit. And then um, I got a permanent job at the Teen Parent Center. Uh, It was just point to one day a week. Uh, and it certainly did spark my interest in uh, maternal mental health. Um, and I started to do some training around that. Uh, and then I didn't end up getting another, um, uh, job in a school. So I had to kind of make a choice. Do I sub and stay at the teen parent center or do I open a private practice? So I decided to open a private practice. Uh, and in doing that, I started to realize there was actually a lot of need in Whitehorse for someone who specialized in maternal mental health um, and specifically birth trauma, because there really wasn't anyone at that time that I knew of anyway, that that had that specialization. A lot of us are generalists uh, because there's a limited number of us. uh, And so people tend to not specialize in these smaller communities because you just, you get everything. Um, but as White Horse grows and as the Yukon grows, I felt like it's maybe time to, to do that specialization. Um, I did have a few women coming to me around birth trauma, and I really didn't know how to help them um, because I didn't have any trauma um, specialization. So I took uh, training in EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is a really popular um, uh, therapy for traumas of all kinds. Of, it originally was for PTSD. Uh, now it's it's used for, for almost anything really. Um, and then I did my advanced EMDR training uh, specifically around uh, birth 
and perinatal trauma. So that's how I got into that. And I've been doing, I've been doing that for, for uh, three or four years now. And we are very happy that you did because now we have our local birth trauma lady. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this idea of birth trauma, I think when a lot of us hear the word trauma, the first things that come to mind are like overt trauma, you know, survival, life and death situation, emergency C-sections, that kind of birth trauma. But correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't have to be that, I'm going to say, overtly traumatic uh, to have a pretty traumatic response um, within your body or your brain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there are definitely what we call big T traumas in childbirth, you know, an emergency C-section or, um, you know, mom is, is bleeding and they can't stop it. Uh, babies in distress. Those are obviously going to be traumatic for anyone right? And then we have what we call little t trauma. And little t trauma is where it's really the person, the individual who can interpret that situation as traumatic, whereas another individual might not experience that as traumatic. And when I think about those things, I think about um, trust, autonomy, control, and safety, right? So anytime one of those things is missing from that birth experience, we can, we can see trauma. And sometimes women will come to me and all four of those are gone, or maybe just one is gone. And so one of the things I I see often with that little T trauma is when women go in with a really rigid birth plan, right? Like I am, you know, I don't need meds. Women have been doing this for hundreds of thousands of years. And I am going to, you know, be able to just push this baby out, no meds, no interventions, which is, I mean, amazing. And of course, absolutely that's true, but women also die in childbirth without medical intervention. You know, the mortality rate in countries that don't have medical intervention is much higher, right? So when those things happen, whether, you know, baby's not gonna come out and and a C-section is necessary Even if it's like, Hey, there's lots of time. They're like, you know what? This is just not happening where, you know, we don't want to put you or the baby in distress. Everything is calm. And, and, you know, it seems to be okay. There's no emergent situation. There still can be trauma because women will feel like my body let me down. Mm -hmm. Right. I let my baby down. Um, Partners can feel like you said you were going to do this and you, now you had a C-section, right? So there can be all kinds of, you know, but most more often than not, it is mom feeling like she let her herself down or her body let her down, or she somehow let her baby down by not being able to, to have this really natural birth. Um, other traumatic things can be, you know, um, partners not being there at a moment of big distress right? Even if you said, yeah, yeah, everything's good. Go get a snack in the, go get a snack. And then all of a sudden things go sideways. The partner is not there. Birth givers alone. It's, it can be really, really traumatic. Um, because that, that safety, their safety person is gone. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing can be that, that loss of control, right? Even if you were again, Maybe you're planning for a C-section, but baby tries to come earlier. 
And now all of a sudden your plan of like, yeah, we're going to go in there on Friday and things are going to be all cool and easy. And now baby's like, well, it's Tuesday. I'm, I'm done. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's like, this is not what I planned for. So really trauma can, can result from unmet expectations of what that birth experience is going to be like. Mm-hmm. And I think that could probably be said for a lot of areas of life yes. <laughs> when it comes to something like birth and labor and delivery, or even the pregnancy leading up to that. Yeah. It's Absolutely. such a major physical, emotional lifestyle shift that yeah. in a relatively short period of time, mm-hmm. um, that yeah. I think maybe that sort of magnified maybe um, that response. Yeah. We really in our, you know, in Western, in Western society have really mythologized pregnancy, childbirth, and the postpartum period as this beautiful, peaceful, loving time. And like, it can be hell and a hot mess and so challenging for people, you know? And when you are feeling like a beached whale, (laughs) you have maskne, like you've got acne all over your whole body, you're swollen and you're looking at these, you know, Instagram mamas and you're like, I don't have that glow. I feel awful. You know, it, it feels like I've done something wrong, right? I'm not, I'm not, this is not my, my, my experience is outside of what society expects, what society has told me I should expect. Right. And this starts long before this idea of, you know, post-delivery and the bounce back after delivery You oh, know, yeah. starts when you're throwing up every day and feeling terrible. And in those early months, having to hide it and make some excuse about why this is happening. Yeah. yeah. And even our, you know, that's a great, you know, talking about that, that early period is there's also a lot of taboo around mis- miscarriages, mm-hmm. right? And so a lot of women don't tell anyone in the first 12 to 14 weeks which is absolutely everyone's choice. And that's, I'm not demanding that everyone tell everyone. I think that the, the hard part is if you have a miscarriage, you need somebody to talk to. It's even if, even if it's early, I tell you, as soon as you see those double lines on that, on that pregnancy test for a lot of women, the story of their child begins. Mm-hmm. Their mamas in that moment. Right. And so all the expectations begin as soon as you see those lines. And so, you know, you could have a miscarriage three or four days later, but you spent three or four days for, for lots of women, not everyone, you spend three or four days creating a life. Absolutely. And making big, typically relatively big changes. Exactly. Right. Okay. Well, you know what, we're going to have to cancel our travel plans because this is happening. And, you know, we're, we're, we're already a hundred steps ahead and sometimes 18 years ahead of ourselves. And so, um, having a miscarriage can be traumatic in and of itself. Right. And then we're told by society, nobody wants to hear about it. Don't tell anyone. That makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I had a miscarriage, I, I, I did talk about it. Cause I was like, this isn't, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I talk everything out. 
right? And I was so surprised by, you know, old high school friends that reached out on Facebook and were like, I had that experience too. Thank you for saying that out loud. Like, you know, we need to do those things more if you're comfortable and okay with that, right? And then when you have people who have multiple miscarriages, it's just so hard. And people feel like they have to do it alone because you don't talk about pregnancy until you're 12 weeks. Exactly. And that even, I think, goes back to this like societal expectation that you get pregnant. It's this beautiful eight to nine month experience and then delivery is smooth, easy peasy. And then you raise this beautiful child and have your beautiful family. Um, and there's really not a lot of that. Yeah. There's no other alternative. There's one path. Um, and yeah. the reality is that is so far from the truth, yeah. but I yeah. see this a lot in pelvic physio Mm-hmm. Often I'm seeing women either during pregnancy or um, post-delivery, but I think a lot of what I see is that um, discrepancy between the expectation and what really happened. And yeah. by the time I see them postpartum, how they planned for things to go and then how things really did went, uh, like that outcome wasn't even in the realm of possibilities of things they had considered. Yeah. Now there's this big acceptance piece to start with that this is what happened. And, you know, it wasn't what I expected or desired or dreamed of, um, but here we are. And then there's the physical recovery piece of all of that. Yes. Um, And as you all know, they are very intertwined. But I think sometimes we're not, sometimes maybe the mental piece and that acceptance piece is the harder hurdle and the less expected one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, You know, thinking about that idea of of the bounce back, right? That that's such a, again, another myth that we as women have to deal with, with, you know, seeing, oh, celebrities bounce back. Well, I would probably bounce back too, if I had a trainer and a chef and, you know, all of the support. Um, and again, like it's, once you have an emergency C-section or a C-section or you have, um, I'm going to say this wrong and you can correct me. Diastasis recti. Yeah. (laughs) Your abs separating. Yeah. You know, one of the fittest women I know had that for years. Mm -hmm. and and had to have it surgically corrected, you know? And so it's, it's, it's such a mental game of like, again, going back to what, what should women look like? Mm -hmm. What should women be? Um, And so you need to, well, you need to go back to being super attractive, obviously. As soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because it's so reasonable. It's so possible. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You brought up an interesting point there with the sort of celebrity world and this bounce back <laughs> idea that for us average Joes, you're expected to do all of that yourself. Cook, yeah. clean, change diapers, breastfeed, take care of the other kids or pets or people in your household. Mm-hmm. And you're just supposed to do it all. But then yeah. we really glamorize these celebrities who have a whole team of people helping them during this, especially immediate postpartum phase. And so there's such a discrepancy. And again, that like expectation versus reality. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really akin to looking at models and magazines and they have literally had their pores erased by a little magic circle. And yet we think, oh my gosh, my pores are so big. <laughs> so true. <laughs> you walk around with like a computer in front of your face. Yeah. You're going to have pores. Yeah. You know? Like how dare you have skin cells and pores? God. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's the same kind of thing. Like we gloss over the fact that that's, that's basically CGI, right? Like that's computer enhanced. And when we look at these celebrities, we, we gloss over the fact that they have entire teams of people. They have nannies. They have other people taking care of their, of their, of their kids, people helping them with their bodies, people putting them and And for some of those women, even celebrities, it's psychologically damaging, right? We don't look at the fact that some, you know, celebrities have eating disorders too. Celebrities struggle with their bodies and for them that, that struggle has to be super private. Mm-hmm. Um, because we don't want to see that we don't they don't want to that would ruin their image right um, but the reality is a lot of and I've also had lots of clients who's who had eating disorders as teens were in recovery and then their postpartum body really ramped things right back up for them right because that that it's shocking to their systems right um, and then they have these, yeah, you know, magazines, I won't name them. I don't want to be sued um, <laughs> that are like six weeks to your best, you know, postpartum body. And it's like, really, it's so toxic. It's so damaging, right? The, the first six weeks, we know my first child was a vaginal birth. Still, I would say, you know, six weeks to eight weeks or more after I was in a complete fog. Like if someone had said like, let's go run, I would, I wouldn't even comprehend what they were saying, you know, and then um, recovering from an emergency C-section with complications after the, you know, in the postpartum period, like there's no way on earth I would have been interested in bouncing back. And as a pelvic physio, I always find that six-week timeline kind of hilarious, to be honest, because it's so arbitrary. Yeah, it's six weeks before you're even cleared to have sex or see a pelvic physio. So we don't even really know what's happening in that time. Um, And you're not really cleared for even activities of daily living in a full way by six weeks. Yeah, so in what world are you supposed to be bounced back and recuperated and ready to just hop back to your prenatal self? Yeah. Yeah. Pre prenatal, I should say. Yeah. 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 It's, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. And then for women who never had that, you know, ideal body in the, you know, idealized, I should say, idealized body, not an ideal body. There is no ideal body. Um, it's even harder to see all of these um, images and uh, because it's just so discouraging. And so it's so frustrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We could spend hours 
steamrolling <laughs> on where oh, yeah. this idealized body business came <laughs> from. Um, but I'm curious if you have thoughts on where this idea of the super mom started. Yeah, I think do it all and that you're expected. And yeah, if you can't do it all, you're somehow a lesser mom or a lesser woman. Yeah, I think that it certainly emerged, you know, I would say probably like 60s, 70s when, um, you know, initially during World War II, women needed to work. They needed to work in factories. The men came home. And basically women were displaced from the workplace um, and put back into the homes. But I, that, that really started something for women that, oh, well, I can do a man's, I can work, I can do a man's job. And for a lot of families, even then, it was a necessity for women to work um, in the, out, outside the home to support the family, um, especially obviously single mothers whose husbands didn't come home for more. Um, and so in the it's this kind of idea of like okay you can be here i guess and i'm not doing anything at home you still need to do all the stuff right so there was this idea of yes you can be in the workplace begrudgingly but okay but don't expect that there's going to be a share of household labor of mental labor you know my my upbringing was quite different than that my mom was a a shift nurse. And so my dad did most of the child stuff. Um, he got us ready for school in the morning, probably why I had a bowl cut. (laughs) (laughs) We all had one at some point. I was right there with you. (laughs) Um, you know, and, and my older siblings were relied on a lot too, uh, for that. So it kind of wasn't my experience, but certainly it was a lot in the, in the eighties was like, you know, mom did everything. And, and I think that's where this idea of super mom came from. And it just continues to get traction in our world. And I don't really understand why, you know, and I think a lot of, I think a lot of things have changed in terms of, you know, and what I see and when I do couples counseling, there's a lot more fairness, but I still see, I still see it come up. Right. And women still do the majority of the mental labor. Right. So it's like, Yes, I have an uh, equal-ish partnership. I love that ish <laughs> partnership, but I have to make the to-do list, right? I'm not saying that about me before my husband gets upset. <laughs> I'm sure my household either, probably just because of the way I was raised. But um, you know, I think that there is a lot of um, yeah, mental women still do the majority of the mental labor. It's like, okay, here's your honeydew list, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that there is still a lot of, of um, traction to the whole, you know, superwoman, super mom. And, and I see it, I see it in my uh, clients for sure. You know, like I, I often rem- try to remind women that I work with that this, how we live right now is not how our brains evolved and our brains are really ancient, right? The last physical change in our brain structure was between hundred thousand and 35,000 years ago. We as a species were living really differently 35,000 years ago. And we needed to rely on our communities. We needed to have diversity in our communities. Um, and, and 
humans that could secure a really diverse group with safety and protection were the most likely to survive, right? And so it the, the other piece of this work full-time, be a full-time mom piece is like, and don't ask anyone for help. I almost swore, Lindsay, but I didn't. <laughs> oh, that's allowed on this podcast. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Let her fly. <laughs> Sorry, mom. <laughs> and you, you can't ask for help, right? No. You, because Superman doesn't ask for help. Wonder Woman doesn't ask for help, right? And I run into this added layer all of the time working with so many women that there's also pressure from other women Mm -hmm. and it could go either way. It's either I'm doing it all. So why isn't she? Yeah. Or on the flip side, there's almost judgment for these women who seemingly are doing it all and having it all. Yeah. That's just this whole extra added layer of pressure and segregating these groups as opposed to this developing your village or your um, diverse group. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that, you know, the other piece of that is, um, I would add a third component to that women who are watching other women who think she can do it all. Why can't I, Mm -hmm. which I think, first of all, is probably not true. Right. Um, And everybody's different. Everybody is different. And that that's when I talk about like, we need diversity in our groups. And so there will be women who are not as interested in child rearing, mm-hmm. right? I mean, or they have kids, but they would much rather continue to do their, their job in the community than to be with the children. And then those, those, then there's women that take care of other people's children, right? Daycares are not like some revolutionary new idea. No, there was, there was always sharing of work and responsibility. And so we need to normalize that, you know, if you want to go back to work at three months and that's your choice, not because you live in the U S and you <laughs> go back to work after sometimes three weeks, Ooh, um, it's right. A whole other podcast. Ooh, boy, we won't even get, we, <laughs> let's, let's enjoy that bit. Um, you know, that's okay. That's your decision. That's what's going to work best for your family. And and some men are really, really want to be at home. They want to be the stay at home parent, right? Um, which is again, a whole other side of this sort of the, the toxicity of this society that we live in towards males as well. Right. Um, but we won't, we don't need to get in that either. Um, you know, I thought that was really interesting in reading a lot of um, the stuff on your website or descri- um, descriptions of this, that it's perinatal counseling and it's for parents, not yeah. mothers or, you know, birth people. Um, not that, just birth mothers, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and that sort of opened my mind to a whole area of this I hadn't considered yeah. that there, as you mentioned earlier, there are expectations from a partner mm-hmm. um, and those can both add extra pressure or shame or guilt to um, the birth giver, but also that's a whole area of expectations to be challenged or let down for the partner as well. Yeah, yeah. And what I, what I often see with 
with with the other partner, the the non-birth giver partner, is trauma around that control piece, right? Around like all of a sudden they said, you know, they told my partner, you know, this is this is done. We can't try anymore. We got to go. And then the other partner is sometimes literally left standing in the room alone. (laughs) And they're like, my partner and unborn child are gone. I don't know what's happening because, you know, even, even in those emergent situations, mom disappears or, or the birth giver disappears. Right. And that they maybe will say we need, you need an emergency C-section, but sometimes they're not even told that. Sometimes it's just like, run. yeah, it is right. And so more often than not though, the, the partners get really left out of the equation mm-hmm. um, or even just like watching your partner suffer and not, not understanding what's, what's really happening. Right. Mm. The partner might not be traumatized at all. They might be like, this is what I expected. This is what I knew was going to happen. It was going to be awful. I'm going to have an episiotomy or I'm going to have, I might have to have a C-section. The birth giver may have had a flexible birth plan, but the non-birth giving partner, you know, be it dad or mom or whoever may feel like what just happened. They, they, they ripped her open. (laughs) Like it's, it can be really traumatic to not know what's happening or to feel like my partner is suffering and I'm helpless. Mm-hmm. It can that be traumatic. This piece would be yeah. so yeah. challenging. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and also, you know, that postpartum, the postpartum piece as well, you know, like not being able, feeling like you're, you, you and your partner were in this really tight bond. And now it's like, mom and baby birth giver and baby mm-hmm. and it's like this exclusive little pair and you're outside of it now. Right. right. And I've heard people say, Oh, boohoo for, for them, whatever. But the reality is, again, it's that expectation that society puts on like men, especially uh, cisgendered men specifically too. Right. That like your woman is yours. Mm-hmm. You're the man of the house and the protector. Yeah. You're the protector. And, and then all of a sudden that's challenged, right. Or you don't have, you don't have sexual um, rights anymore because Mm -hmm. you're not in the mood. Everything changes. And it's like, yeah, I get that that may be like, oh, boo hoo, but it's, it's, it's work that needs to be done. You know, like you need to figure yeah. out to still function in the relationship when things have changed. And it's, again, it's, it's, I feel like my job is really just managing unmet expectations. Yep. <laughs> well, and it really navigating a whole new dynamic and role again, in a really quick time period, we yeah. go from one day of not having a baby and the yeah. next day having a family yeah. and having to figure out what that looks like for you. Yeah. On top of the obvious postpartum hormones and exhaustion and crying babies and all of that kind of thing. And, and that's if things went relatively well. Mm-hmm. If there's been, you know, if you have a NICU baby, right? Um, 
if you, yeah, like struggles with, with attachment for either parent, mm-hmm. those things can really, really drive a wedge and, and postpartum mood disorders again, can really impact the relationship and, and create, um, really challenging situations in relationships for, for parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In your practice, how, I know this can be maybe a hard question to answer, but mm-hmm. what is the prevalence of these postpartum mood disorders or people who seek um, counseling postpartum for some of these issues or concerns? Statistically, it's between 15 and 20% of women that experience postpartum uh, mood disorders like anxiety, depression, postpartum OCD, uh, and then a really small percentage, uh, I think it's like one, I don't, you know what, I'm not going to say it because I might be wrong, uh, experience postpartum psychosis, which is really dangerous and really scary. And if you, if you think your partner is breaking from reality, you need to get them to the ER ASAP. Um, they're just really, they can be really dangerous for, for everyone involved. Um, but I think that those numbers, first of all, are much higher, um, than, than the 15 to 20% of, of the postpartum mood disorders, not the psychosis. Um, because what I see is women who are in people that come to me in really bad shape. Right. Right. So those are just um, the reported numbers. Those are just the people who are reporting because again, going back to that sort of societal mythology around the postpartum period, there's a lot of shame for women who don't instantly fall in love with their baby, right? Bonding can take up to six months and that's not uncommon, right? Um, that in itself, I think is something... Mm-hmm. That would be brand new information to a lot of people, myself yeah. included, that yeah. six months is a long period of time postpartum to not feel connected and bonded. And you're yeah. right. There's so much shaming and guilt around that. But absolutely. what I'm hearing you say is that can be really, really normal. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Especially if, especially if the mother has had um, lots of miscarriages, Right. Right. There was birth trauma, um, troubles breastfeeding, all of those things can contribute uh, previous previous traumas. Um, and even um, even if if your mom struggled with bonding with you, then the parts of your brain, what we call the nurturing network, don't fully develop. Interesting, right? So so then you don't have as much of that yourself. So it takes a longer time to develop that, which is, it's okay. There's nothing like attachment is not, you either have it or you don't. Attachment is moments. It's built over time. Right. Um, And so it's not, it's not about a deficiency or it's, it's like, Hey, I'm noticing this is happening. Okay. You can work with somebody like me who can help you facilitate that bond. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think the people that come to me are in bad shape. And I think that there are lots of women who are, or lots of birth givers who are suffering in silence. You know, some women will sit in front of me and be like, uh, they'll be kind of nervous and they'll say things like, I don't, I don't really know that I deserve to be here. Like, how do you, what does that even mean? Yeah. 
Yeah. And if you're there, you probably should be. Yeah, right. <laughs> or, you know, like my, my partner's, my partner wants me to be here. Okay. Tell me what's going on. And then we talk about it and it's like, Ooh, you are really having a hard time right now. Um, and so, yeah, being able to identify earlier, you know, you don't have to suffer alone. And, and I think the other piece is postpartum anxiety and depression look different than regular anxiety and depression. Um, postpartum anxiety often involves a lot of rage. So who wants to admit that they hate their baby? Not many people. Not many people. And it's not to say they always hate their baby, right? <laughs> but, you know, I had a really, really sweet client come in once and she looked very sheepish on the couch. And she said, I told my baby to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> and but you yeah, know what? There are probably a lot more people who want to say that. <laughs> and I just kind of like, was like, well, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, she felt terrible about it, but I'm like, it's part of the anxiety piece. It's part of the frustration, the helplessness. Like, again, we're told moms are going to know what to do when their babies are born because it's so natural. Mm -hmm. First few weeks, especially if you have a more colicky baby or babies that have kind of the, the purple cry, there is nothing. It's their nervous systems. It has nothing to do with anything you're doing. Well, right? and even if we think back to what you were saying earlier, our brains have not structurally changed in oh. how many thousands, tens of thousands of years. Yeah. And our world has dramatically yeah. changed in 10, 20, 50 years. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So right. And those so parts weren't meant to function in this world. Exactly. And it goes back to that idea I was talking about before of how, like, how we live now is not how our brains are set up, especially around that postpartum period, right? Childbirth and postpartum where, you know, you wouldn't cook or clean, you know, and, and if we look around the world too, at different cultural traditions, like, um, you know, in, in China, there's a 30 day period where you don't do anything you don't, I shouldn't say you don't do anything, but you take care of baby, right? Someone else cooks and cleans, no visitors, you know, you don't go visiting. It's this really, I mean, it can be isolating, I'm sure for some people. And at the same time, it's this period of like, you need to recover. This is a massive, physically demanding, life-changing experience. And you need some calm down time after. Right. And there's, there's cultures all over the world where that's a pretty standard practice of like, um, having this rest and restoration period post postpartum. Um, and that multiple people come in and share the activity, you know, share in the load, um, of the household, right. Some cultures, the younger kids are taken they're taken out of the house. Right. When you first yeah. mentioned the, that 30 day period to me, I remember feeling like mind blown, but also that's not a revolutionary idea. No. Like, where <laughs> did we, where did we get away from that idea? Um, yeah. 
if it is still a common practice or accepted norm in a lot of countries and cultures, what the hell are we doing here in North America? Like, <laughs> and, and one of the, uh, you know, one of the jobs of, of the, the, you know, aunties and, and other moms that come and help is to teach you how to take care of your baby. Right. So again, that expectation in Western society of like, you'll just, you'll just know how to do it because women have been doing it since the beginning of time. Well, but not alone, no, right. Not alone. And that is what I think, you know, and, and then the other idea is like this selfless mom, you give everything for your family and leave nothing for yourself. And that is a, another myth that I try so hard to really break my clients of because it's so damaging and, and you end up, you know, I, I always talk about the airplane, right? It tells you, put your mask on before you help someone else, right? Motherhood is like that. You need to take care of yourself. So you have energy to take care of the others. Right? Absolutely. In, mm -hmm. like, really, again, any realm of life, we could probably apply that. But I know Absolutely. I talk about that a lot with my clients as well, that what if we even just reframed it of, you know, you're not taking away from what the people you love and care for get. What if we yeah. reframe that, you know, what do they get to receive by you taking care of yourself and being, yeah. you know, rested and nourished and enjoying life. Yeah. You're going to show up as a better parent or spouse or partner or whatever that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it definitely applies to other areas of life, right? People, not even just, not even just women, but people who dedicate their lives to their jobs, right? It's, it's, you have to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I kind of do a bit of a reframe with my clients as well. And I say, if you can't psychologically say to yourself, I need to take care of me. I want you to say, I need to take care of them by taking care of me. Yes. That I'm like, okay, fine. It's not about you. Okay. Bubble bath <laughs> is not about you. It's about them. Yeah. If we can't make it that far down the road to say you matter, <laughs> then let's just focus on them. <laughs> yeah. But you still need to take care of you for them. Still need to take care of you. Exactly. And so, you know, that's, that's what, and I see it so often. People are so resistant to self-care, self-compassion, you know, being able to forgive themselves for not having a natural birth, struggling with breastfeeding, or even saying fuck off to a screaming infant. <laughs> Sometimes it just feels really good to tell anyone to fuck off. Yeah, right. It's <laughs> fine. Like you could say it in a really sing-songy voice. Exactly. Right? What is that child, that uh, bedtime book? Go the fuck to sleep? Like, yeah, go the fuck exactly. To sleep. Right. <laughs> they were onto something. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And so yeah. in this postpartum phase, what could self-care or, you know, even pre 
Natalie, what could self-care look like um, and what kinds of things could people do mm-hmm. to minimize this difference between expectation and reality or outcome um, and the risk of um, maternal mental health issues postpartum? Yeah, I think a big thing is creating that community, right? Creating, you know, um, in the North and in Northern Canada, a lot of people don't live with their families. They don't live around their families. You know, even if you're from, you know, a a more remote uh, Yukon community and you, you know, you live in Whitehorse, you don't often, you don't always have easy access to your community and your, and your um, support people. And so really creating, creating your own community and support groups and talking, talking to people. I know pre-pandemic, there was a great series um, put on by what was then the midwifery, I think it was the midwifery, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but it was birth stories, right? Where they would go to baked cafe or the ca- local cafe and women would just go up uh, and talk about their birth experiences. Um, I love and- yeah, I would love for that to start back up again. And I think, you know, people worry that, oh, if I tell someone about my emergency C-section, then they'll be really anxious, which, yeah, of course that's a possibility. But in my experience as a therapist, you've already gone, you've already, you're already, if you have anxiety, you already have gone through about six or 700 worst case scenarios. So you're not bringing some new information, right? Maybe sometimes like, oh, I never thought it could go that way. Okay, I'm gonna add that to my list of things, right? 501 things to worry about instead of just 500. I think it's more about helping people see the variety of birth experiences, right? Um, in order to prepare themselves to be more flexible and to also feel like I'm not alone in this. When I was at, um, at teacher college, my, one of my instructors said, if, if one kid in a class has a question, chances are seven other kids have the same question, but they're too scared to ask. Absolutely. And so I think of that as experiences too. If one person has had an experience like that, then lots of other people have had an experience like that. So when, when we ask other people, when we talk about things with people and we realize like, that was, that was your experience too. Oh, okay. I'm not alone in this. Um, It can be really powerful because again, thinking about how our brains work, how our brains evolved is, you know, one of our shortcuts we take is who's in and who's out, right? And if we feel like I'm looking at the in and the in is like pregnancy glow, everything's great, childbirth is easy, no meds, and then postpartum is like this blissful time, you know, where I'm bonding with baby and it's like soft lighting and it's so great. Um, then when my experience isn't like that, I'm, I'm the out. Right. Right. I'm done something wrong. And you know, my body failed me all of those things all over again. And if we start to hear other people's stories and realize that's their experience too, all of a sudden I'm not out. 
right? So it's a really, really important psychological component of, you know, health is to know that you're not alone in something, right? And so really creating that community, um, certainly, you know, something that I've been trying to do more with clients is to create a postpartum plan, um, especially for clients who have uh, experienced postpartum uh, mood disorders or birth trauma before. Um, so we, we really, we create a postpartum plan, right? So we do those basic things like let's set up a meal train, right? If you can, right? If you can't set up a meal train, then can you stock your own fridge or freezer with pre-made or ready-made meals so that you make that piece easier, right? Um, make sure you, who could you call at 2 a.m., right? Maybe nobody, but you know, just looking at like, what, what's my community? What are my supports? What do I need? Um, and also read, you know, this is a tricky one, right? Reading is yeah. Like Google is a scary place. It can be a scary place. Um, and I think if we can read things with the right mindset that these are just these are just some experiences or this is just some information right um there's a lot of books there's a lot of like the you know the the chat groups that can be so shaming around like i ate a piece of i had a cold cut sandwich today and it's like (laughs) my what you know yes they're, they're tricky. They're tricky places. Right. But, um, there is also, you know, reading about other people's experiences again, can be, can be helpful and in, in reminding us we're not alone. And for some, for some women, especially in the isolated communities, those online chat groups are their community. Right. Um, I'm starting to see a lot more authenticity on social media around a lot of body positivity, but um, in the sort of pre-postpartum world as well, where people are just being very real and very matter of fact. Um, And I'm hoping we're moving toward a lot more of that and a lot less of these like perfection Instagram mamas. Yeah. Um, And again, you know, if that is your experience, there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. Um, fantastic for you that's amazing right Um, and I think there's probably it's probably worth mentioning that I come across a lot of clients who do have a smooth relatively easy as expected pregnancy mm -hmm. and delivery experience and that even those people feel shame about it so there is no freaking winning Um, (laughs) you know they feel almost bad that they've had it too easy um, and they don't want to talk to people about it because they don't want to like rub it in or something like that yeah yeah but I think maybe finding when it comes to reading it's finding the people that feel aligned with you, you know, the people that are interested and prioritize the same things and values that yeah. you will as a parent. Um, it's similar to, you know, choosing faith or something. You may not um, be Catholic, so you probably won't follow someone who is preaching a lot of Catholicism, you know, whatever <laughs> that is, but finding yeah. the, finding your tribe, so to speak, when it comes to resources and social media, I think can um, sort of quiet some of the noise of all of that 
comment section yeah. nonsense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and being mindful, you know, along those same lines, being mindful of who you're following in terms of like, is this person, is this person have any idea? Does this person have any idea what they're talking about? Um, you know, always a worthwhile question on social <laughs> <right>? media. Yes. <laughs> and, and finding, I think it's important to find things that are humorous too. Like there's, there's a lot of funniness in there, you know, lightning crotch, super unpleasant, but you know, later it's like, wow, it's like that lightning crotch is a real thing. <laughs> exactly. And as we've talked about for this whole episode, some parts of pregnancy and labor and delivery just aren't glamorous. Oh, and the sooner we, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the sooner we can kind of get over that, um, you know, shying away from the not so glamorous parts and just bring them in the open, the sooner they feel less shameful. And yeah, sometimes adding a little humor to that. Yeah. Like ladies, you and your baby will be wearing a diaper the first (laughs) few weeks. Get over it. Exactly. I can remember being in my twenties, early twenties and learning that when my first friend had a baby and at the time being like kind of horrified that that's what happens because that was my first knowledge of anything postpartum. Um, but then again, it was kind of a running joke in for that first week and making light of it, you know, again, it was something we talked about. She didn't feel like she had to go hide in the bathroom and, you know, do her whole process alone. And yeah, uh, yeah, I think that helps build the community when you can be open and a little quirky about some of these things. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. What other kinds of things might you have in a postpartum plan or even just consider um, as you're nearing labor and delivery that you think might be helpful um, mm-hmm. to kind of change the mindset? Or I think um, just like we try to do with, with a um, birth plan is you want to build in flexibility right? You want to, you want to learn a little bit and your partner too, absolutely learn a little bit about postpartum mood disorders so that you, if you, if you or your partner start to see those signs that you can catch it early, the earlier you catch it, the better they're super treatable. And the, and the, the thing that, that is frustrating is that the postpartum period is not six weeks, mm-hmm. right? In terms of postpartum mood disorders, we can see them emerge anywhere from the first few days to two years after birth, right? And they don't go away. I think that's the other thing that's really important, right? Your baby doesn't turn one and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not anxious anymore. That's so great. (laughs) That was easy. They, They continue, they persist because we, we kind of almost create these habits of mind. Obviously, sometimes they're hormonal. We have this period um, that can emerge anywhere in the first six weeks, um, six to 12 weeks that we call the baby blues. And it, what it's a, it, it only lasts for two weeks, right? So once we see a consistently low mood or, or, you know, a a pretty low mood persist for more than two weeks, then we're going to start thinking about postpartum depression. Um, and again, they, they look different, they look a little bit different, right? Um, the postpartum OCD is often characterized by, or can be characterized by intrusive thoughts about harming your baby or, har- or harm coming to your baby. 
Um, I've had lots of clients who are terrified of the stairs because they're terrified they're going to fall down the stairs with their baby in their arms. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's really important, especially as health, as mental health care providers for women that we understand that those intrusive thoughts about harming baby have nothing to do with intent. Um, a lot of women, especially, you know, in the Canada too, but especially in the U S because there's such a, um, worries about being sued that women will have their children taken from them. Right. Because they're having these thoughts. Um, whereas like to me, you're coming to me because they're, you don't want them and you're coming to the right person or people, whoever you're seeing, right. Because that's our job is to help you manage those to help you deal with them. And, and, and medication is super helpful. I, I never advocate either, you know, one way or the other. Um, and certainly medication can be helpful for people that are in that period. So in a postpartum plan, knowing a little bit about what those different things look like, especially postpartum psychosis, it's rare, but it's so dangerous and it's, so, it's very easily treatable. That's definitely with medication. There's no, there's no talk therapy for <laughs> you know, obviously talk therapy after, because there's going to be a lot of, uh, there could be a lot of trauma or, or guilt, shame around that. But, um, you know, again, the community piece, I cannot emphasize that enough. Um, creating a care team, if you have knowing your risk factors. So if you've had, if you've had childhood trauma, if you've had previous medical trauma, um, those are things that are going to increase your risk for birth trauma. Um, and being really, uh, clear with healthcare providers about um, what you might need postpartum um, and talking about your risk factors with them so that they are also more aware. I think um, certainly in Whitehorse, I obviously can't speak to um, the rest of the country, um, but I've done a couple of different talks with the, with the um, like Sage Clinic, um, which is the new no solstice, solstice, solstice. Um, solstice. So Sage and and um, Crocus have kind of combined now, um, and so um, I've done lots of talks with them around around this, this work as well, um, and helping them with you know learning how to prevent birth trauma, um, the nursing and, and medical staff, which is which was really great to be able to do that. Um, and talking to your partner, like, what are the expectations, right? What are, what are our expectations of each other? What are expectations of the house? Um, and thinking about, okay, what if I have an emergency C-section and I'm not allowed to do anything for six weeks? What if I just feel like crap for six, eight, three months, whatever, right? Um, planning on how do I manage my expectations of the house, right? If you want everything to be spick and span, but you don't have the energy and your partner is also completely exhausted and, you know, we need to manage our expectations of what, what the house is going to look like, mm -hmm. what meals are going to look like. And so that's another piece of it. Um, and then I think also thinking about, um, how, how do I not lose myself in this? Because all of a sudden, probably, you know, I noticed, I noticed as soon as my first child went to daycare that I was Owen's mom. Nice. 
Um, and I think and- that happens so easily and so quickly, especially yeah. in those first six, 12, whatever weeks mm-hmm. when they're kind of your little sidekick everywhere you go, you know, they're feeding every couple hours or yeah. whatever that yeah. looks like. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're sort of a package deal and it happens pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's instant, right? You have your, your one minute, you're a mom, then I'm sorry, one minute, you're not a mom, you're not a parent. And the next minute you are, and it's like the fastest transition (laughs) and, and then it's a life, right. And then it's like, it it can be really, and maybe you can't do the things that you used to do. Um, a lot of sometimes, especially with clients who are really athletic, um, you know, they're what, their coping strategies are not available to them, right? I can't go for a run. I, I can't do weightlifting. I can't, you know, for, for various reasons, a lot of the things that they do to take care of themselves have now vanished. Um, and so it's really, it's really thinking about who you are before, knowing that your life will change Absolutely. There's no, there's no question. There's no way that it's not. And I think sometimes, again, that's another can be a place of trauma because people sometimes think, especially when they're little, Oh, I'm just going to slot them into my life. And yeah, I'm going to bring them everywhere. I'm going to do everything. But it's like, they're, they're their own person so early on. Right. And if you have a kid who's like needs super low stimulation and you're an extrovert, it's hard. It's really hard. And all of a sudden you can't go out with your friends all the time because your baby is completely inconsolable when they're overstimulated. Right. I think a lot of those feelings of your life changing, or, you know, a lot of my friends who had kids at a young age, you know, my life is over. Um, a lot of that mm-hmm. in itself is a difficult transition. But I wonder too, if a lot of the feelings that might actually be mood disorder symptoms, Mm. if we normalize those because, well, yeah, you know, I can't run or I can't do whatever I'm doing. So of course I'm stressed and feeling anxious and a little angry or sad or whatever that emotion is. Mm. Um, And I think so much of motherhood, as we've talked about, is normalized and not talked about, but yeah. I'm yeah. curious there when you, we've talked about mood disorders, um, mm-hmm. you mentioned that two week period that if these symptoms persist longer than two weeks in those first six to 12 weeks, mm-hmm. would that sort of be the maybe criteria for seeking help or counseling or talking further about this? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. I mean, I think first, I think we all experience grief all the time right? Grief is such a normal human experience. I I had an an elder that I worked with at the teen parent center and she had this amazing example of like an everyday grief experience. She's like, if you're cutting vegetables, thank you, Betsy Jackson, for this example. (laughs) I'll give her her the credit for sure. Um, If you're cutting vegetables and you cut your finger, the first thing you might do is, oh my God, I can't believe I just did that. So that's, that's denial. Right. And then you might think, what am I going to do now? Right. Or, oh God, I'm such an idiot. Depression. 
right? Or, oh, I'm so stupid, anger, right? And then finally, like, I mean, there's more stages, but I'm simplifying, you know, and then finally like, okay, just go get a Band-Aid and then I'll start again, right? That, that's grief. You've gone through the stages of grief. And so when we have that period of, I thought this baby would just like slot into my life. It's still helpful to go and talk to somebody about that, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be a professional, but to, to, to be able to express how you're feeling and experience that grief, that's normal. That's okay. Because you can never, you can read every baby book in the world and, and not be prepared for motherhood because it's just, every experience is so different. Every baby is so different. You can, you know, have, I've got lots of moms who have, have multiple children, but it's this kid and this reaction. And that's, that's really has thrown them for a loop because, you know, all my first two babies were so easy and this baby is inconsolable. What am I doing wrong? What's wrong with me? Right. And so it's, it's really, I think what we always think about, or what I always think about when I'm talking to people about postpartum mood disorders or, or, or any, anything like that is, is it impacting your daily functioning, right? If it's impacting your daily functioning, then you deserve to be here. You deserve to get help and you should get help because it's not a, it's, it's not a, a lifelong thing. It doesn't have to be right. You can, you can get help and feel better about yourself, feel better about motherhood, all of those things, parenthood, you know, again, like it, it extends to, to, to dads as well. And that's a, you know, it's often not to, again, not talked about because, you know, the other partner should just be fine. Yeah. They didn't have to go through the labor and delivery, so they should be fine. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, they can even be shamed by the birth giver. Like you didn't even give birth. What's wrong with you? Yeah. And I think we hear that a lot, you know, even in TV and movies, there's a lot of that narrative. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think just really building in that flexibility. Um, again, if you know, you're susceptible to those things, like what are the extra things you might need or want? Can someone come and be your 2 a.m. support person, right? Can someone come and, you know, whether it's a, a your mom or aunt or friend or whoever to, to help support you? And, and, you know, also thinking about something that we definitely don't think about in our society is, or often, what do we do with the other siblings if this isn't baby number one, right? Um, because all of a sudden now they are also going through a massive transition too. Right. Mm -hmm. And that gets really overlooked, uh, and can be a massive challenge because they don't, especially if they're young under like two or three, whoo, they have no clue what just happened. This is like an invasive species that has come in and stolen their parents. And they're like, so many moms will say, they keep asking me when they're going to, when the baby's going to leave. <laughs> I've definitely heard that one too. 
Yeah, right. And so having 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 someone help with that transition too, you know, and 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 really I'm such a big believer in front loading, right? Even if you think they don't understand, just just read the, you know, sibling big sibling books anyway, right? Mm-hmm. To help them to help them kind of understand on their level, there's so many age appropriate books um, about um, what this is going to mean to you, right? Um, lots of little kids experience massive regressions, right? Um, kids that were potty, you know, so many parents are like, I got to get them into their own bed and I got to get them potty trained before this baby arrives, which is, yes, like for your own sanity, so helpful, right? Um, at the same time, just expect a regression. If it doesn't happen, um, that's amazing. But if we, again, we're building in that flexibility of like, yeah, they're potty trained. There's a really good chance they're going to ask me for diapers when they see me changing their, their new siblings diapers, right? If you have that in mind and it doesn't happen, that's awesome. But if you don't have that in mind, it becomes this really frustrating um situation with you and your with your older child because you don't understand what's happening you should be proud that you're a big kid you should be excited about the potty but it's like yeah but you coo with her you rubber belly and I just go to the potty by myself like that's a bum deal no thanks (laughs) I really liked what you said at the beginning around the idea of trauma they kind of pillars I'll say of like trust autonomy and I can't remember trust autonomy control and safety yeah Yeah. and there's lots of different ways that that other like therapists have kind of thought about that I learned that in my first um, training around birth trauma and it kind of really stuck with me because I think it's it's easy to look at those things yeah and I think easy to look at those things you know for yourself for your mm -hmm. partner for any other children involved that yeah. Would you say that would maybe be a good basis for looking at a postpartum plan to look at what would provide these things for you and what, um, yeah, options yeah. for what happens mm-hmm. if I don't have autonomy in a situation, which I think is yeah. so common in a hospital birth that we lose autonomy quite quickly. Yeah. yeah. It's just not knowing what our options are and the things that we can ask for. That's right. And, you know, I think, I'll, I'll use the example of my own birth trauma because it, to me, it, it's a really good illustration of those things. So um, my daughter had IUGR. We had to be in Vancouver for, I, or I had to be in Vancouver for seven weeks before she was born, weekly monitoring. Um, and, and about 36 weeks, she just stopped growing completely. And um, so at that point, the specialists, uh, oh, the specialist OBGYNs were like, sorry, she's done. She needs to come out now. Uh, and so at 37 weeks, they induced me, everything was going so beautifully. Uh, and then, um, they broke my water and the, the cord came out before her. And so I looked at my partner and I was like, we're done. And he's like, what are you talking about? And within like seven minutes, my daughter was born. It was super fast. I won't go into the gory details. (laughs) Cause it was weird and gory. Um, but there was a moment where I was in the operating room and I, the surgeon said scalpel ready. And I started screaming, I'm awake, I'm awake, I'm awake. Like 
right? So here I'm not safe, right? And then the anesthetician, anesthetician, anesthesiologist, there was no anesthetician there. <laughs> She's like doing my nails. I was well, going to say, you're getting your nails done, having a baby. That's multitasking. <laughs> what happens with BC women? It's super bougie. <laughs> anesthesiologist gently put her hand on my shoulder, right? So gentle, gentle touch. She made eye contact with me and she said very calmly, that was for me. I got you. And all of a sudden, even though I had no control, they did. She had me, right? She made me feel safe in that moment. I didn't, I didn't need the autonomy. Right. Trusted them. Right. So that part of my birth wasn't actually traumatic because I'm, it met those four criteria. It, it didn't for a second, right? When she said the scalp was ready, I'm like, oh my God, they're going to rip me open and I'm wide awake. I don't even have a girl in. Um, <laughs> it was, it, but just that, the way that she so gently put her hand on my, on my shoulder and looked me right in the eye, again, gentle eye contact and just said, that was for me, I got you. It, it saved that event from being traumatic because if she had just put me out, my last moment would have been fear. Right. Right. But, and that took her maybe two or three seconds. She didn't take, she didn't stop the procedure. She didn't waste time. She was already doing the thing she was doing, but just taking that moment really prevented that from being from coding in my brain as traumatic, right? And I think that's so important to know that it doesn't have to be much. Yes. You know, a gentle touch, eye contact, and some words of, you know, reassurance and just understanding a little bit yeah. more what's going on exactly. uh, can make all of that difference. So mm -hmm. when talking about making this birth plan or postpartum plan and just learning more and knowing that it yeah. can be that simple to provide safety and security for your partner yeah. or yourself in moments that you maybe are losing the autonomy or whatever other piece of that um, security yeah. is. Mm -hmm. yeah. Just to add to that a little bit, I think one of the other things that I think is really important for people to, to understand is that when our, when when we're in this big transition, the people around us are trying to connect with us, right? When you're, you know, toddler who you were just so proud of because they were potty trained is now wanting diapers. It's, they're not being a little asshole, <laughs> right? As much as it feels like it in the moment. As much as it feels like it, what they're trying to do is they're trying to connect with you because how they connected you with you before isn't working anymore. Mm -hmm. right? They're not used to not being your sole focus, especially if you've been at home with them, right? And now all of a sudden this baby is here. And so they're going to do things that my, an old boss of mine uh, had this great plaque above his door. Uh, he was a principal, a school principal. And he said, the kids who need the most love will ask for it in the worst way. Oh, I love that. That's so true. 
And so kids will, kids will do things to get your attention, you know, and I, I, it's not attention seeking, it's connection seeking. They're trying to understand, they're trying to renegotiate this relationship with you, but they don't have the words again, especially if they're younger, right? Three, two, three-year-olds, they don't have the words to be like, Hey, I've noticed our bond is really switched. Can we talk about this? How do we connect now? Right. They don't have the words for that. They're like, I need to and see what happens. Yeah. In fairness, a lot of adults don't have the words to articulate that feeling. Exactly. And our part, you know, we may see those same things with our partners, right? Absolutely. Of like, this has changed in ways I didn't expect. I don't know how to communicate that with you. I feel awful. So I'm going to, I'm going to pull away. I'm going to avoid, right. I'm going to throw my hands up. Well, I don't know what I'm doing mm-hmm. um, because we're trying, we're, we've, we've this new life and this new role that the, the birth giver has taken on shifts the dynamics, right? It doesn't have to be negative. And, and sometimes it's, it is, sometimes it is really amazing. Um, when we see our partners really, you know, help, help us in ways we didn't even think possible. And sometimes it can really put a strain on the relationship because that how we used to connect is not there anymore right? Or is not as easily accessible, especially in that postpartum period, which again is not six weeks, right? It's, it extends much longer than that. Um, and so, yeah, talking about that with your partner, how are we still going to connect if I have zero interest in sex after this for a while, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? all of those things that we just don't think about because again, we just have this vision of everything's going to be so smooth because it's so natural. And I think relationships in general, we don't often like to talk about the potential for negativity and things going wrong as if that's somehow going to make it happen. Um, But I think you would have far more experience in that, that, bringing these things to light and talking about them, I would imagine often eliminates or not eliminates, but prevents it from happening or going into a resentful um, dynamic around the issue. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it really depends on the relationship you had before, right? If you've always had an open communicative relationship, things are probably going to be pretty okay. Um, and things could even be even better because you get this unbelievable respect for each other, right? Like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that they were capable of this, right? This mm. is so amazing. Um, and if you're in a relationship where there's a lot, there's already a lot of resentment, there's already, you know, or like poor communication, having a child is going to amplify that. It is not going to improve that, right? And so if you're in that situation, you want to try and again, this preventative work of, you know, how do we, if we want to have a family together, how do we, how do we improve our communication? How do we navigate these really tough conversations that, that we don't have, you know, that we're scared to have Um, definitely doesn't improve postpartum. If you can't talk to each other about what you're experiencing and feeling. Could the same thing be said for your communication and relationship with yourself that if you're sort of 
shying away from these things and not, you know, having an honest, real look at thoughts and feelings around it or your yeah. relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then you have this added pressure, I think, of, um, you know, trying to be this super mom for your kids, trying to be now all of a sudden you're a role model, right? And And trying to, how do I navigate the fact that I loathe myself and I don't want to pass that on to these little people. Mm -hmm. Right. And so absolutely when we have negative relationships with ourselves, um, it does not having kids doesn't improve that it again, amplifies, you know, there's a, there's an entire type of therapy called internal family systems. And it is basically like inside your head, there are multiple parts of self and they are like a family. And so if you have that, I mean, we all have parts of self. Absolutely. Right. And if you have a lot of negative parts of self or parts of self that are, you know, feel negative, then that just gets amplified by, by pregnancy. Cause it's like, Oh, now here's all the things you're doing wrong in motherhood as well. And you're ruining their lives. Like so many of my clients be like, am I ruining their lives? Because I, you know, right. Ooh, boy, that's a lot of pressure. Yes, you are, by the way. Like, <laughs> yes. Just get that on the table to start. Just start, start squirreling away a therapy fund now. <laughs> I will often, you know, I will, just, hey, I yell at my kids sometimes and I'll be like, uh, in my mind, I'm like, I will put some, now I'll pay for your therapy later for that one. <laughs> put 10 um, bucks in the jar for that one. <laughs> it's, you, you can't not, do things wrong sometimes is really mm. right. And so when we think, you know, oh my God, I told my three week old to fuck off, <laughs> you know, we're going to have those moments where we, we don't handle things the way that we want to, and that's normal. And it's actually, you know, kids need to see that too. Kids can't, because then they're trying to live up to this perfectionist. Like we, we have to stop the cycle by repairing when we make a mistake right? By, you know, sometimes we have to struggle in front of them because they need to see that that's a normal part of life, right? Sometimes we don't always do the right thing or say the right thing. And that's okay. We need, we can't leave it like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's important for them to, to see a struggle, but it's hard to do that. If you have this really negative, toxic relationship in your own head, Mm -hmm. Yeah. You gave a lot of really awesome ideas for what a postpartum plan could look like or how to start making a birth plan. Is mm. that something that someone like yourself would help people with during their pregnancy or maybe even before becoming pregnant or leading yeah, to delivery? Yep. So I've helped. I've certainly, um, I don't, I help people with the psychological side of a birth plan. Mm -hmm. I don't want people with that's more of, of a doula midwife or, or doctor to help with the sort of physical aspects of it. Um, but certainly I, I love to kind of add into that and, and people have sometimes will send me their birth plan and we'll talk about it. Um, uh, but certainly the postpartum uh, thing is something that I do with people, right. To help them um, again, like making sure like, do you have a pelvic floor physio 
that you know that you could go to, right? Um, just looking at different, you know, different um, aspects of that, I certainly do. And I'm, I'm in the process of creating a postpartum plan workshop and kind of booklet for people to have. Um, so excited to- about that. I know, I know. Just have to like find the time to do it because I'm yes. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, that's something that I think is, um, is really important. And I think more people need to, to do, to do that so that they can, you know, again, build in that flexibility and also know what is coming at them, even though there is no way for me to possibly prepare them for what is coming at them. That makes sense. It totally does. Uh, Sort of more of a clue than what we get. Yeah. And yet just being prepared mentally in some way for a variety of outcomes sounds like a real key piece to having a closer expectation and reality if we have a a flexible plan or idea of what that might look like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, it's been amazing chatting with you and I will look for those workshops and resources for your postpartum stuff and make sure that we share it um, on the podcast. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and expertise. Yeah.